and one and two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Jack Mayu. He is the Director General for Enterprise Operations and IT Security for Employment and Social Development Canada. He has been a public servant for 18 years and a longtime advocate for open government and open data. And today, Jack will tell us the backstory on how CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, was developed, at least from a technology perspective, in such a short time. And in doing my research, I came to learn that so far, CERB has processed over 8 million unique applicants and close to 16 million applications in total since inception. But perhaps most importantly, it has distributed over $43 billion to Canadians in need. Hello, Jack, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Richard, it's really good to be here with you again. All right, so let's start right at the beginning. On March 18th, 2020, the Prime Minister announced that a framework for a program to support Canadians who don't qualify for EI would soon be coming. Can you tell us if the ESDC was either being consulted or mobilized or put on notice that something like CERB was on its way prior to March 18th? And if so, what were the preparations? First thing I'm going to do, Richard, is address something you said in the introduction where I'm going to give the full backstory from a technology perspective. Um, Just to be clear, I I could not possibly do that myself. Um, (laughs) This was a significant team effort across many aspects, not just of uh, Employment and Social Development Canada, but also um, other government departments who really uh, chipped in. This was a a full whole of government team effort, and uh, I'll give you my perspective. So it might be be a more narrow one than than many people out there will appreciate. But, uh, you know, in response to your question, again, I'll say CERB was part of a whole of government crisis response. And um, was there consultation? The, The true story is that it was on the you know the, the pandemic was on the radar screen of um, the government early in January. Um, obviously, you know the the signals were coming from uh, overseas. Uh, you may remember seeing some earlier videos of hospitals going up real fast in China. You know we were watching pretty closely what was going on over there. Um, within a few weeks, I'd say of those early signals, most departments were probably looking at the potential impact of the global of a global pandemic a declaration. And, you know, all all of them were watching pretty closely all of these events across the globe, the number of cases, the number of deaths, the, and, and fortunately for us, you know, um, opportunistically, I guess we were getting um, a good uh, idea of the economic consequences and jurisdictions that were hit early. This was what the bureaucracy was witnessing. No doubt this was what the political side was witnessing. As a result of that, I think I can say that the wheels were in motion for operational readiness inside the government quite early. From an operational perspective, uh, business continuity plans were being assessed. Uh, you know, we even had a few tabletop exercises quite early when when we didn't really appreciate the full impact that was uh, heading our way. You know, we had tabletop exercises that would um, address whether we had a 15% or a 30% or a 50, 50% absenteeism rate in the office. Little did we know that it would be pretty soon uh, close to 100%. 
Um, and, and I have no doubt that every single department in the government was, you know, conducting these kind of studies and reporting up the chain and addressing not just the operational readiness, but obviously what they would need to do in terms of serving their constituents with whatever services it is that they provide. ESDC, being in the business of providing employment insurance, um, obviously was, uh, you know, we, we were a canary in the mine shaft because we saw things happening even before there were public announcements about layoffs and things like that. So we were seeing it as a department. No doubt the political side was seeing it. We're getting notifications from large employers about layoffs coming up. Um, you know, all, this was all because of the, pe- the potential pandemic. Like we're talking about like January, February here. The first case in Canada was late January, right? And even with that first case, there was still um, some doubt. You know, I guess there was no clarity around whether there was community transmission. But that became clear fairly soon after. But you know, what we were what we were seeing was already in Canada some impact in terms of closing borders to air travel, for example, even before the even before it was declared as a pandemic. So you know, obviously that would be impacting airlines and and uh, organizations such as that. So we were getting an early indicator. That there were, you know, we were starting to see a significant increase in the number of empl- uh, employment um, insurance applications, uh, notifications from employers, uh, records of employment. This is the, the the behind the scenes business of the bureaucracy of EI, right? And we were getting a really quick indication that the volumes were were going up in March, in in February and March. So that that's the reaction, and I think. Uh, the, the department was already starting to think about things that we would need to do to deal with that kind of volume. Um, on, a, on a good day, there was already an EI backlog. Um, but when you have an EI backlog on top of what you see, an unprecedented wave in the number of transactions heading your way, then there obviously had to be something more more drastic done. And I, I guess that from a, from a departmental perspective, it would have been our job to be ready with options to put in front of the deputies who would put them in front of the ministers and then start to address what it is that the government could formulate as, a, as an effective response. It, it, I never really thought about it that way, that the ESDC, because you have access to so many sort of potential indicators, you saw, you saw what was happening. So in reverse, were you sort of telling perhaps government officials, elected officials, like, by the way, this is this is real. This is going to happen. It's already affecting us, even though the, a lockdown has not been announced. Was it perhaps a, a different conversation instead of the prime minister or other sort of elected officials coming to you guys for, you know, how do you think a CERB would look like? Were you yourselves going to them saying, we need help? Like, you should know about what's going on right now that you may not know. Yeah, I, I don't know if we were informing anybody about what was happening around the world, but it was definitely our job to appreciate what the impact would be um, on the business of ESDC in the context of uh, such a significant tsunami of, uh, of activity heading our way. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the job of the department is to, uh, is to inform um, up the line, um, all the way up the line, uh, in terms of uh, what we saw heading our way, uh, what we saw as the potential consequences, and obviously what solutions that we might bring to the table to, uh, to, um, to, to smooth out that, uh, that load. So what were some of those preparations leading up to, to that March 18th an, uh, announcement? You, you almost need to look at this from two different perspectives. I mean, and... and I'll be honest, you know, being in charge of enterprise operations, my main focus would have been to ensure that the people in the department were enabled to do the job that they had to get done. Mm-hmm. So the people who were uh, who needed to connect into the office to look at the uh, systems that we needed to receive all of the applications, 
um, I say look at them, needed to basically start to tune them such they could operate at a hyperspeed as opposed to at the regular speed that they did. Um, we needed to enable the people who would be developing or changing the systems that process the applications. Um, we needed to be enabling the, um, the you know, I guess 1,500 or so call center operators um, to be able to work remotely. These are all, you know, uh, operators who worked mostly, I'd say 99% in a Service Canada office responding to calls from Canadians at a desk. Um, well, all of a sudden, they were going to be sitting at home taking these calls from Canadians. Um, so, you know, a better part of my responsibility, my team's responsibility, was to make sure that we were enabling them with the technology that they needed, number one, to work from home. And then a significant uh, contribution to everything that we did was very much in conjunction with Shared Services Canada, who manages the networks and, uh, you know, manages most of the technology that, that supports us. I mean, we, we support tools such as, you know, for, for secure remote access, obviously, uh, but when we're looking to augment the capacity of them, we're very much dealing with uh, SSC as the custodians of the architecture of the of the data centers. So, and, and that was a significant uh, challenge. I mean, we, we were off on our original estimates, honestly, when we when we were go going into this, we thought maybe we had a couple of gateways that could handle 13,000 people each. We found out pretty, they'd never been pushed that far obviously, and never tested that far effectively. But once we got going, we really realized that we'd be lucky if each of them can handle 3,000 or 4,000. So we had to basically reset and say, okay, what, what do we need to do to make sure that we have gateways on our various secure remote access solutions to enable 28,000 people to work? Fortunately, some of them were still working in the office, you know, with, with uh, social distancing provisions where municipalities and provinces were allowing people to travel into the office and work in, a, in, in them. Um, but between, I'd say between March 16th and pretty close to mid-May, we, we had a solid capacity to support close to 25,000 people working remotely. And, and let's stick with that, that period a little bit. And actually, I'm going to be a bit more focused. So on March 18th, the prime minister sort of gives, gives a heads up to Canadians that we're going to do something to help out these Canadians that have been laid off. And on March 25th, is when the actual CERB is officially announced. And I'm wondering what had to take place to put together the infrastructure, aside from some of the, you know, for example, those gateway issues that you mentioned a moment ago, but what had to take place to put CERB together? So I guess a prime minister can make that announcement. Yeah, I'm going to add another date to your timeline. And I think sure. it was either March 25th or March 26th that ESDC announced that as a result of the pandemic, we were having to close our offices to the public. So with, with those three things in mind and understanding that we're basically saying now we need to service customers online, not in, not in person in the office, which was probably never an effective model that you, you, you needed to rely on 100%, but it did make a difference because, you know, who, who goes to Service Canada offices? People looking for information. They were going to be looking for information about CERB and they weren't going to get it across a desk. They weren't going to be able to sit there and ask questions. So, you know, what needed to be done? Well, I think I've already mentioned, you know, we're, we're anticipating this uh, new benefit, you know, and we knew something was coming based on what we presented as what's possible. And uh, out of the numerous options that we did present, I don't know if it was called CERB on March 24th or if CERB was the tag that was put on at March 25th or at March 18th, I mean, 
Um, but, you know, we, the announcement came from the prime minister that CERB was there. It wasn't a total surprise to us. And some of the work had already been underway. So some of the uh, testing of the application that's required to um, receive the application. A lot was taken out of the post-processing. Um, so there was a lot of changes that need to be made made to that. You know, we, we switched from a very heavy pre-audit process to what was going to, you know, what is now a post-audit process. Um, so Ooh, sorry, what do you mean by pre-audit process and post? You mean like we're gonna we're gonna verify the validity of these claims after the fact, and we won't worry so much about the application process for these applicants? Yeah, there, there's a, we, I mean, obviously unless you wanted uh, everybody applying. I think in the first weeks, first two weeks, maybe even if the first week there was 2.7 million applications. So obviously you cannot continue to put those through the same kind of upfront rigor that um, that every other claim. You know, oftentimes I don't know if you've ever applied for unemployment insurance, but it'll take four or six weeks. Well, the objective here was to get money in people's hands to help them through the pandemic as soon as possible. And you know, I've heard from some uh, some acquaintances that they they had money deposited within three days. So. The, the main reason we were able to do that is that there's a lot of uh, verification up front. There's a lot of uh, edits that are done based on analysis of the data. It's all done in advance. Well, you, you've likely heard that a lot of this analysis is being done now for the first wave. It's going to continue to be done if we need to catch up with people who made errors or if we need to catch up with people who played the system, um, then that's going to happen after the fact instead of uh, before. And, and that's where the system changes were made. You know, it wasn't about adding more validations and rules into it. It was about actually taking some out. And there was a lot of, and, and I think as, you, as you're aware, this is, a lot of this is based on older COBOL-based systems, and uh, the, these were the guys that were um, you know, either we found some quick reinforcements or they were putting in a lot of long days and a lot of long weekends to get the changes made. Some of that was going on even before the announcement, obviously. But, you know, I guess the prime minister doesn't always tell you and how parliament functions. You don't always know exactly what the date is that uh, everything's going to be clear. And when that announcement came down, it just put everything into hyperdrive. You know, from my perspective, my birthday was March 25th. I think that was pretty close to the announcement. It was the announcement date. That was the Wednesday, I believe. And we were told that by Monday, we needed to have a thousand computers out to uh, new call center agents who were going to staff man the lines for the serve. So, um, you know, team, my team went into full gear, excellent support from everybody up and down the line. We had uh, devices on uh, perlator trucks. In some cases, we had devices being delivered from Sudbury to Toronto and from Ottawa to uh, Montreal uh, just to support where the department had found people who were willing to sit on these telephone lines and respond to serve calls the, the day after. Just uh, amazing work across the department from the business lines, from IT, from, from everybody in the whole organization. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the, the, the reoccurring themes that I've had with many of my episodes in the last little while is that the pandemic has really put a magnifying glass on the digital divide that exists in Canada, that we're not as well connected to the internet as many other people are. And it's not just, for example, an older generation or older people, but it's a lot of people who can't afford the internet or can't afford a computer and they have to normally go to libraries and so on. And by closing down ESDC centers where someone would get that information, that put a giant potential burden in fulfilling and answering their questions. I never really thought about it that way. And it sounds as though that was one of the priorities you guys had during that period of time is making sure that those who cannot go to the ES, who cannot connect 
online still have the ability to speak with a Canadian representative. You're absolutely right. And it, um, it, 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 it highlights the challenge with the digital divide still because, and, 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 it, and it basically put us in a position where we could not rely strictly and only on online services. You know, telephone call support is still necessary for those people who don't have access to online. And, and it could be anyone, you know, um, we've, we've heard stories of people in the, in the suburbs of Toronto or just, you know, 30 kilometers north of Ottawa. It's not just the far north that has issues with uh, internet access. Unfortunately, everybody seems to be able to get at a telephone or at least get at a get at um, an internet connection somehow. If you know, even if it's just one day of the week where they're traveling from wherever they live into the larger village that has a connection. But yeah, it's been a challenge, and not that's that's the macrocosm. From our perspective, we have a little bit of microcosm inside that with the twenty-eight thousand people who work at ESDC, because when you want to enable them to work remotely. Um, many of them are in that situation too. I mean, we, we still have odds and sods of people who um, you know come into the office and, and they, they basically have to because they live in an area, we've got a few that live in an area where they have no cellular connection and no, uh, no internet connection. Sounds like a pretty peaceful place to live, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but it does put them in a difficult position to telework. So, so let's talk about that for a moment because again, I'm putting a lot of dates out there in this conversation just to help the audience remember contextually what was happening. But on March 15th is when Quebec went into lockdown. And prior to when we started recording this episode, you were telling me that, you know, they had blockades on the bridges because the borders between Quebec and Ottawa were closed. So you guys have offices in Ottawa. You also have offices in Gatineau. You have people that live in both provinces and commute back and forth. And you're trying to put together this incredible programming, incredibly fast, in an incredibly unusual way, with incredible pressure from, from a variety of stakeholders. And you don't have everyone in the one spot. You have connectivity issues because people live in remote areas. How, how was that like? So I'll, I'll be honest, the first few days were quite frightening because, and, and I don't want to get too deep before I explain another aspect of our organization. We're not we're we're not centered. We, we our head office is Gatineau, obviously, but um, we've got people across the country. And you know, I started at ESDC on January the sixth, and part of my orientation was I, I traveled from St. John's, Newfoundland, to uh, Vancouver, visiting people who work for me from one end of the country to the other. But um, and and that was a real strength through this thing. And I'll get into it a little bit more. But the first few days. We're, um, we're a little bit scary because um, it's when there was this, well, number one, there was a lot of meetings happening inside government to figure out, you know, what, what the response was going to look like. And uh, video meetings, uh, Skype meetings, uh, everything, and it's all happening on the Shared Services Canada network. It's all happening across, uh, you know, Bell Canada uh, telephone lines uh, leased by uh, SSC. And th those first few days... There was a lot of problems with network performance, uh, cellular performance, uh, desk phone performance. Actually, did, I remember. Did, actually, I remember hearing that. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. That the actual landlines that you guys had in your offices were sometimes even worse than the internet connections that you guys had access to. Well, you know, I said SSC, but I'm not sure. I think I think the carriers themselves yeah. were experiencing something that was unprecedented because I'd pick up the phone and I'd dial a number. 
that I dialed every day for the last uh, 20 years, and it would tell me that the number is not in service. Mm. There was something happening uh, inside the telephony and the uh, computer networks. Um, it was just they were just being overwhelmed. And kudos to SSC, kudos to the vendors who needed to step in and see what the issue was, and probably hyperscale many aspects of their uh, their uh, their network just to deal with the the the, the incredible shift of um, of of traffic. You know, um, we'd been doing a lot of studies on our internal network at ESDC, you know, trying to uh, tune it, trying to figure out where the glitches were. Looking at our network now, the topology, the traffic is very different configured now, it just in terms of remote use uh, and very little at this point, uh, network, internal network use. So it's a future challenge. But getting back to your original question, yes, we we had to deal because we're you know, coast to coast to coast to coast. We had to deal with the various different um, municipal municipal regulations uh, where our locales are. We had to deal with provincial legislation where our locales are. And um, it didn't all happen in every jurisdiction all at once. You're right, Quebec, I think, was the earliest to announce border closures. Um, there might have been a few other provinces before Ontario. You know, the, the nature of the announcements and the precautions that were being taken by the different provincial premiers was uh, was different. The immediate impact in, in, in for, for us, us at our head office was, yeah, there's a lot of people who worked in uh, on the Ontario side, who, who work on the Quebec side, who lived in Ontario. And when they shut down the provincial borders, there was a lot of people, um, unless you were on a critical services list that had been put together pretty quickly, you theoretically couldn't get across the border. Now, they, they, they had barricades up. Uh, I'm told that most of the time when somebody tried to cross a bridge and you told the police officer you were from ESDC, they would basically just flag you through and say thank you very much, which was very much appreciated. And uh, I, 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 returned, I returned the salutation. I said, thank you very much for being here. Because the, those early days, there was a lot of traffic disappearing from the streets and you knew that most most of the people that were out there were people that in one way or another were, um, were, were working to help Canadians uh, uh, through the initial stages of the pandemic. In, in terms of our head office, I think there's only about 6,000 of 28,000 in, you know, in Gatineau. Um, so we're split into, um, you know, we're, we're really four regions, uh, Atlantic, Quebec, Ontario, and then Western and Territories. And I, I sometimes consider the National Capital Region to be a fifth region. I guess if you were to look at it, it's probably one of the bigger regions. But I have people on my team who um, who work in St. John's, Newfoundland. I have people who work in uh, in Vancouver. So, and the area of selection for most of our staffing processes is not is not NCR. Um, it's national. So my my IT security team, for example, the 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 lead. Um, you know, lives in Vancouver, works in the Vancouver office. The senior advisor, IT security, lives and works in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, so, you know, on many fronts, we were fortunate that we had that coverage from coast to coast. You know, I looked at a few of the teams and I realized, boy, that team is all in this locale. What happens if that locale gets shut down? And some of them did. Um, that's where the push to basically start to enable everybody to telework as soon as possible came in. And, and the work itself in terms of we're going to be giving Canadians who apply for this based on these qualifications, $2,000. You actually had to, I'm assuming it was, you were part of the team at the very least that helped put, put together the infrastructure for the application process. Am I wrong in thinking this? 
No, uh, you're you're wrong in saying it was my team. So I'm the Director General of Enterprise Operations. We have a Director General, three Director Generals actually on the business solution side. And one of the business solutions director, uh, uh, gener- uh, Director Generals carried a lot of the weight because um, she's been in charge of those systems for a while. She knows them well. Uh, her team was very much behind her and very much engaged with their, our business delivery folks, uh, benefit delivery folks. And, um, you know, as part of envisioning what the art of the possible, um, they really need to collaborate with the business. The business came up with some great ideas. You know, the IT side would figure out a way to do it. And, uh, and hopefully um, they were able to do most of what they would have liked to have done. I'm pretty sure it did because everything came out at the end of the day pretty successful. So you're, and I want to characterize your work a little bit. You were almost there to help enable those teams carry out their work in a secure and efficient manner. Am I wrong again in thinking this perhaps? No, no. And, and I'm largely responsible for relationship with Shared Services Canada too. So okay. that's, the, that's the operations side of the business. Has anything come out from your work on CERB to make the future IT infrastructure for the Canadian government that much easier to, to work with? I'd say that's one of the most significant uh, accomplishments or successes of um, how things got done, frankly, because, um, you know, obviously the technology of the government systems has been under the management of Shared Services Canada ever since the order in council to create them came through, which was, I think, 2013. And, um, you know, what they inherited from the government departments was data centers, so physical Mm -hmm. data centers. Since then, their task has been to consolidate these data centers, look for savings across these data centers. But obviously, what, when, when you talk about uh, either doing something on-premises versus off-premises, you have two choices. You basically go to a software-as-a-service provider who's hosting everything for you, or you start to build solutions in the cloud. And um, I think there's a lot of that that happened. Well, I know there's a lot of that that happened within ESDC. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of that that happened because one of the conversations that was uh, was Uber accelerated the very start of this was how do we enable secure access to cloud and start to get solutions developed in the cloud. The capacity that was needed for many of the things that we had to do, obviously I'll say this in Shared Services Canada's uh, behalf, um, we had a lot of upgrades that had to be done to the data centers, to, to the uh, to the to the hardware, to the software, and they did that. But to deal with everything, then there had to be some uh, way of engaging outside service providers to start to develop solutions for us in the cloud. And there's a lot of that that came out in the context of the uh, pandemic response. So, so let's go back to sort of working through the problem in those early days before the actual April 6th launch date. You had... In the SDC, about 28,000 employees, I think you were saying earlier. And you are essentially acting as a liaison with, with shared services. You're acting as a, to, to help enable these business solutions teams as well. And you're doing it with very tight constraints. As individuals, like, and I'm trying to get a little bit more perhaps to some of those emotions because you were saying like, it was actually kind of scary at first. So what like, how was it like for the rest of your team even? Was there like, I'm assuming there was frustrations, but at the same time, I'm assuming there was also these moments of like, we finally did it. Like, talk a little bit more about sort of the human interactions that were taking place during those first couple of weeks there. 
you know, the, the first couple of weeks was really frantic and everybody wanted everything to happen all at once because we knew it was extremely important, you know, in terms of um, getting extra capabilities up for people to connect in terms of getting devices out. You know, one of the things I didn't mention is that in, in the very early stages of the pandemic, we were already starting to telework enable people by getting them devices, headsets, cell phones. But then when the, and, and that was easy when the offices were open, but imagine trying to get tele, um, you know, uh, devices and headsets and telephones to people when you, when they're at home, that just complicated things. And, you know, that was one of those moments where a lot of people came together and said, Oh my God, what are we going to do now? We, we, you know, huddled around the table and figured out ways that we could collaborate with local manage, management to make that happen. But we, you know, we would augment capability, for example, of uh, the secure remote access solution. We, we had about six gates uh, across two different solutions. So we'd augment the capacity and we'd watch how it worked. And, it, you know, we, the capacity would go from 3,000 to 6,000. And, uh, yeah, you know, we can celebrate that. But you know what? We need uh, 17,000 more. <laughs> um, and it, it was just it, exactly that. And you had to take the time to, uh, to celebrate the successes. But there was always something more that needed to be done. And um, it, it got to a point where, you know, we literally had to make sure that we were taking care of our colleagues. For example, you know, I had some, uh, some of my staff was working with me and I could tell that they were getting drained. And honestly, they could tell that I was getting drained six weeks into it, eight weeks into it. And uh, we, we, we made deals with each other. We said, you know what, you need a full day off. You need to turn off your cell phone. You need to turn off your machine. In fact, what you need to do is you need to forward me your cell phone. You need to forward me your emails. And this is the deal we're going to make. I'll do it for you on Sunday. You do it for me on Saturday. It, it basically came down to that. And, you know, in terms of human interest, that was the amazing thing is that everybody realized what needed to be done and how important it was. But then, you know, people figured, well, it's, it's like when you're on a plane and the mask pops down and they tell you to put your mask on first. Well, if you're not taking care of yourself... How are you going to take care of other people? And there was there was a big focus towards that once, especially when we were six or eight weeks into it. And you realize that I realized I was getting incoherent at times, and I'm I'm not contributing constructively to this conversation anymore because I'm so tired. I'm not thinking straight. And you really had to step away. And and you know my staff would tell me, Jacques, you need to step away. I would tell my staff, you know. You need to step away. You're taking a day and it's going to be Saturday. You know, I say Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday didn't matter. You needed to step away for a day and come back. And every time you did that, you were just ready for another round. You, you mentioned some of the relationships, particularly um, between the ESDC and Shared Services Canada. But I'm assuming because of the, the situation that you're in, the ESDC has a lot of partners that are involved with other government departments. Can you speak to those relationships a little bit during that time? And I'm, I'm, I can't think of one right now, but like Finance Canada, for example, like the transferring of funds, like either, there's got to be a, a mechanism that's in place to make sure that within three days of an application, somebody gets their $2,000 checks. Can you speak about those relationships with other government departments to make this happen? Yeah, you know, honestly, the ones that I would have been most involved in in my role would have been Treasury Board and uh, CCCS, the Canada Centre for Cybersecurity. But I, I know my colleagues, on the, especially on the business solutions side, there was a lot of interaction with finance, a lot of interaction with CRA, because we, it's not ESDC that has the money. We don't have the bank account. So um, everything that we did was basically getting ready to send a file over uh, to uh, to finance and uh, to, PW, to, to, to PSPC, 
you know, the ones who cut checks, the ones who, who do the uh, automatic fund transfer, the, 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 the deposits. So, you know, the, I think the ones I mentioned are the ones that we would have been most directly involved in, but there's many other implications when you look at the other aspects of the business of ESDC in terms of the labor side, in terms of enabling uh, temporary foreign workers coming into the country in the middle of all of this. You know, there's a lot of uh, interaction. ESDC is, I think, the largest government department, if not the second largest behind CRA. And um, it's um, it, it, it's a varied business towards, um, you know, providing social support to Canadians. And um, it was it's a ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you mentioned a moment ago that you had very close interactions with the Treasury Board. You personally, as, as part of the, the work that you were working on, can you... Tell us a little bit what that was all about. I'm assuming it had to do with policies for the rest of Canada and things like that. Can you can you talk about that relationship and what was going on there? Well, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd consult them uh, in terms of policy that we knew was changing. And I'll be honest, you know, they were they were a tertiary or a organization that I dealt with. Um, but you're right, they're, they're the policy arm of the organization. Uh, we, we need to do things. Uh, we were interested in their teleworker profiles or their worker profiles. Um, you know, we were trying to anticipate early what was happening to the uh, to, to the staff inside the uh, the government of Canada. We were dealing with them for some staff augmentation because they run processes. They they know where you know the talent management pools that they have and all this stuff. So we were we were desperately looking for help on many fronts uh, from from other uh, departments. And Treasury Board is a good central resource to assist us in that. You also mentioned that you worked with um, a security agency. I think you called it a CCCS, was it? Yeah. Um, what were some of those conversations with the CCCS? Well, and any solution that you implement inside the government is uh, subject to guidance that's issued by either CSC or CCCS uh, that mandates the security controls that need to be covered, that mandates the level of security assessment depending on what kind of data is involved. Um, so we, we we were moving things along on the IT security assessment side just as fast as they were moving along, them along on the development side. And um, when, when you're dealing in that regard, then any work that, you know, if you can leverage any of the work that anybody else has done in a similar area, then you can get things done a lot quicker than if you take it all upon yourself to do it. And there was a lot of collaboration. I say CCCS, we collaborated with CRA. They had a lot of similar challenges to us. We, we, we shared the responsibility of delivering sort of with, with CRA. You know, they've used a lot of tools that we considered using for the first time. They put them through security assessments, for example, and we leveraged some of their work. Um, CCCS, very familiar with uh, a lot of supply chain risk management issues. So we, we dealt with them on many of those fronts as well. And also just keeping an eye on the horizon. They, in conjunction with CSC, were monitoring the kind of uh, things that were happening in Italy, for example, with with malfeasance trying to play the system. And you know, it's not not necessarily just local people that play Italy, and it's not local people that play Brazil or the United States. It could be um, somebody from another country. It could be state sponsored. They they would give us uh, some good information on uh, on what to look for and what to watch out for. Well, this is fantastic. So you're also in contact with other jurisdictions around the world as you're putting together. It was a really international effort, it sounds like, to put CERB together to a certain extent. Well, I, I, you know, we don't deal with other international jurisdictions for IT, for security. That's uh, the job of the Central Security Agency. And I think, you know, we were probably 
with our benefit delivery modernization program, heading towards a, a solution that was much more modern and robust uh, than most uh, across the world, in fact. So we, we were a step ahead of the game, but um, you know, did, did we learn anything from uh, the Florida EI system? No, we did not learn a thing because uh, as you may have heard, their EI system basically crumbled and everybody was lined up for miles to apply by paper. We were incredibly fortunate that capabilities inside the government and weren't as uh, weren't hindered in that way. So people were officially able to apply to CERB on April 6. And like you were saying, there was no horror stories about servers going down and web pages taking forever to load. As a matter of fact, most of the stories from news outlets was that people were shocked at how easy it was to apply for CERB that they were like, did I do this right even? Like, am I going to get my check after all? it's It's a good story at the end, but I'm kind of you can't be part of something that is so big without having any sort of concerns or doubts or fears when it goes live. Can you talk a little bit about that as you're approaching April 6th, that maybe you or other members from your team or the ESDC in general were like, we're crossing our fingers, we're really hoping here. I mean, you, you do everything you can to mitigate the risk. And it's questioned at every level in the organization. I mean, it's scrutinized. Uh, you know, there's, there's more what-if conversations than you could imagine. And um, in many cases, what we announced and what was put in place was, um, was cranked up to uh, maximum capacity within hours. Um, we, had, we, ran, we ran many hourly reports, if not real-time monitoring of the dashboards to see where it was. Uh, you know, there was a very heightened awareness around needing to monitor things directly and be proactive, be, be proactive in responding. I mean, there was none of this, let's debate a request for change for three days. Uh, we might have a request for change we need to put in in five minutes. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, that, that's, that's the speed that uh, we had to operate at. You know, a lot of people say that's the speed that they wish government operated at all the time. Totally. And, uh, you know. I think we've spoiled our senior management. And now what we're hearing from them is that, listen, folks, there's no going back to 2019. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is actually a really good point that you bring up because I was having a conversation with um, someone who works for the government and we were talking about CERB and what the SDC was able to do in a short period of time. And you're really sort of the argument a lot of the times with government is that we got to go through all the protocols. We don't have the manpower. We're not able to move in an agile fashion. We're not able to move fast. But you guys came around and, and essentially debunked that myth or that convention. Do you think that the model, that, not necessarily the model that you guys adopted, but what you guys were able to accomplish in such a short period of time will be almost like the trailblazing for government the Canadian government, government at least in the 21st century going forward. When you get to multi-department contribution to solutions as such and whole of government focus to a solution, um, then you know, the, 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 the hurdles of bureaucracy get knocked down. You know, the, the, the turtles turn into rabbits. <laughs> um, I'm using one, one of your analogies there. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen this once or twice in government when I was with the International Development Agency and there was the earthquake in Haiti. Um, it was a multi-departmental effort, whole of government effort to mobilize the relief that needed to happen. And, you know, decisions that typically take two months 
and need a dozen ministerial signatures were, were getting done in minutes, and, and that was necessary. Ditto with the, uh, the response to the CERB uh, across multiple departments. I mean, you, you, you say you guys at ESDC, but it wasn't us guys at ESDC alone. Um, you know, if, if finance wasn't agile, if SSC wasn't agile, if CRA wasn't agile, if we all weren't equally committed to um, expediting things along, it wouldn't have worked. And that, to me, is the biggest uh, is the biggest difference is uh, is that whole of government focus and that whole of government appreciation and empathy. In our case, I guess it was probably amplified and easy because everybody understand the social impact of what ESDC was up to. And uh, you know, when you're when you're talking to your partner departments and they understand your volumetrics around EI applications, it's just telling you that that, that people get it. You know. It's a service that's critical to Canadians, exceptionally critical during this pandemic, and everybody lined up uh, to, to get it done. Let me ask you the question differently. Do you think this kind of agility is sustainable in a non-emergency environment? I think the agility is sustainable. I don't think the pace is sustainable. So what impact will the pace have? Like, you, you cannot expect people to work, um, you know, 20 hour days uh, for very long. You know, I'm, I'm wondering when I'm going to fit a vacation in. And I know I have people working for me who are wondering when they're going to fit a vacation. But it's absolutely essential that you get a vacation. Well, that means you're going to have to be able to take your foot off the pedal for a while. Yeah. So, yes, well, we know we could do this in uh, three months if we put everybody behind it and have them work 724. But, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> you will burn people out. You need to keep your eye on, on the people. You need to be reasonable in terms of what can and can't be done. I, I think to, to offset that, we need to definitely work a lot more closely with our uh, private sector counterparts. That helps to take pressure off the people in the government who, through the through the um, pandemic crisis response, have put in very long hours and very, very long weeks. Now, earlier you mentioned COBOL, and we sort of glanced over it, but but for those of you who are not familiar with COBOL, a, a story came out in early May that the ESDC system for handling EI claims is based on a language that dates back to 1959. And I'm assuming, you're not on the business solution side necessarily, but I'm assuming that this undoubtedly made things harder for you um, in terms of executing the demands of CERB. So I'm, I'm can you speak to that a little bit? You mentioned uh, some, to, to a certain extent that you had to hire or find people that could code in COBOL, but uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, you know, I mentioned we needed reinforcements, but uh, you know, we, we have the people that support COBOL, obviously. And it's, it's really interesting because um, all of a sudden this story came out about the aging IT systems in government. And I, I think I actually tweeted out a copy and a link to a news story about Sheila Fraser's report from, and I can't remember the year offhand. But Sorry, Sheila back, Fraser is who? She was the Auditor General in Canada, and I'm going to say 2011. And she was highlighting the fact that, yes, these systems in government are aging. They are uh, old IT in terms of hardware. They are old IT in terms of software. This was not a revelation that came out all at once, although, you know, a lot of New young people on the scene thought, oh my God, look at this, it's brand new. No, this story has been raised numerous times. And and we, you know, we at ESDC have realized that there's a significant uh, benefit delivery modernization program going on to um, to move away from that. 
but we weren't there yet. And it's obvious that this whole exercise has accelerated that. We've probably gained a couple of years in the last three months, which is which is very important. But in, in terms of COBOL, I mean, it's still a language that does the job. There are still guys around. I, I don't know them personally, honestly. I, I picture them being, uh, you know, old and gray-haired and glasses because the very first programming language that I worked on in the private sector was COBOL. So they're, they're, they could be uh, as old if, or older than me. I don't know. But uh, I was kind of wondering if I need to go back to that uh, when I decide to retire, because uh, if it's still around at the time, it'll be a, a premium. I hear that uh, the state of Florida was desperately looking for <laughs> COBOL programmers oh, really? in, yeah, yeah. in Georgia as well. Um, but we, we, we kept up the capacity. We know. I mean, it's a critical system inside our organization. We had those people. Like I said, the, 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 the need for reinforcements was uh, to uh, try and shorten people's days and give them a day off every once in a while. And, gotcha. uh, and, and that's, that's still a requirement that we have is to support these COBOL systems until we've forwarded the benefit delivery modernization program to a point where it's in a new platform. Well, let me ask you about that a little bit. You, you said that perhaps the pandemic has, has helped you guys in making that case that these systems need to be modernized. Beyond just this sort of COBOL language and EI, like what else has resulted from the pandemic in terms of helping the government modernize its IT infrastructure, other elements perhaps? What I'd say is the biggest significant accomplishment is the acceleration of uh, establishing solid cloud support environments. So, and, and that's, that's critical. I think that's part of SSC's mandate. I think there was some projects launched to establish secure cloud ground connectivity by 2023. We're, we're pretty much there at a certain level of certification right now. So, you know, that to me is the biggest accomplishment. And that relates back to one of your early points you raised is that uh, how can you build, build that agility? Well, the promise of cloud is agility. Promise of cloud is uh, hyperscalability when you need to hyperscale, which is exactly what happened in the context of this crisis. So that that to me is one of the one of the main uh, takeaways that we can uh, we we absolutely need to continue to deliver on, and it, and it's already creating repercussions inside the organization in that now we have to have an op- a cloud operations team, um, and you know set up to not only um, well to, to to take care of the whole life cycle of cloud-based solutions. So we, we have to start thinking about wrapping up this interview, but there's a couple of quick questions I want to ask you first, and they're, they're simpler questions perhaps, but in all of this sort of organized chaos, what was surprisingly easy? Um, the surprisingly easy part was how little motivation all the public servants around me needed to basically put everything behind this, you know, and you, you, you figure as a leader, you need to be the drum, you need to be, you know, rallying the troops. No, the, the troops rallied on all fronts. You know, and, and, I, and I, 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 I got to a point where I'm seeing managers and directors in different areas of the organization just taking the bull by the horns and, and, and bringing things where they need to be. You know, we had some, absen- we had some absences. We had people step up without a peep and basically step into a role above theirs and deliver. So, you know, I, I don't know in some organizations how hard that might be. In the public service, uh, I think everybody, we just passed through National Public Service Week, so this is timely, but everybody can be, is enormously proud and can continue to be enormously proud of what they accomplished through this. 
it was almost as though like, you know, it's our time to shine and everybody was ready to go. It's everybody that, that you had a chance to work with was, was not complaining and not necessarily like, oh God, like this, I was not hired to do this. Everybody seemed to be ready to, to pick up that piece of trash or do whatever the little thing that was required to be done and put in so many hours to make sure that almost 10 million Canadians could, could pay their bills. So my next question is the opposite of what I just asked you, which was what was surprisingly difficult? <laughs> I'm going to be very selfish about this, but uh, in my business, I need to know intimately every single person's situation in ESDC. So, you know, if I'm responsible for their capability to telework, then I need to know a lot of pieces of information. I need to know a lot of data about those people, where they live, do they have internet access, uh, you know. So I'd say the toughest thing that we had, and you know, no HR system is perfect. No asset management system is perfect. No people tracking is perfect. Well, it would have been nice if it was perfect for this because it would have made that <laughs> job a lot easier. And I, I was speaking to our uh, chief data officer a couple of weeks ago on this. And there's a lot of focus inside the organization now about the data behind the business, about, about employment insurance and all that. And I said, we need to have perfect data about our people. Mm-hmm. And that would help us through this because we, we were trying to build critical services lists. Like if we, if we have 28,000 people to work for us, but we only have 6,000 network connections, who should the people be that we connect first? It's, it's not that nobody's not critical. But if you're being forced to make a tough decision like that, where you cannot physically let more than 6,000 people connect, then who are those 6,000 people? We, we need to know, you know, we need to know all that data about our people in order to be able to manage a crisis like this effectively. Well, this has been a fantastic interview so far. And, and Jacques, I've known you for a number. Jack, I always go back and forth, me being French Canadian. <laughs> It depends uh, on what, what, whether you're in Ontario or Quebec. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's the opposite even. Uh, but uh, you've been an incredible hero for the open government and the open data community. And to me, myself, over the course of my, my last, you know, we'll say six or seven years that we've known each other. And uh, I thank you again for joining us. But before we conclude this episode, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet or talk about that you feel it should be mentioned? The only thing I'll mention is that, you know, and, and it ties back to something I said, where there's no going back to 2019. Mm-hmm. We, we are looking at the, the future of telework inside the organization. And it's going to be a significant discussion. The, the, the focus for the last, I'd say, 10 years, you know, when, when you hear about Workplace 1.0 and Workplace 2.0 and Workplace 3.0, it's about getting more people in the office in a smaller footprint. Well, the, the, the story's changed now. You know, I think whereas before you needed special permission to telework and you had to justify teleworking, the, 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 that shoe has fallen. Now telework will become an easy norm. I, I hear people saying they get more done teleworking than they did going into the office and they don't have to pay for parking, you know, and they, and they don't have to run up and down stairs between meetings. They just stick between Zoom and Teams and they're in, they're in another meeting right away which isn't necessarily good for your physical health. But I I think that's the one thing that looms large on my mind. We're not out of the pandemic yet. Um, I I hope that we are soon and that we can move on and kind of uh, 
I don't want to say reap the benefits, but uh, but carry on the innovations that have happened through this whole story. And uh, you know, we, we need to be ready for the next pandemic a lot more than we were for this one. And that's all part of making sure that we don't forget the lessons learned from this whole exercise. As part of the interview with Ryan Andrusoff that we did for the uh, the podcast, we talked a little bit about what you just mentioned. And he brought up an element that I'm not considered about teleworking, which is one of the things that the pandemic has shown is that the government has the ability to do some teleworking on a large scale and still be able to conduct everyday business. And if we go on that route, then he asked the question, what happens to the real estate? Because (laughs) the government of Canada has a lot of buildings and a lot of offices across the nation. And do they have to be mothballed? Do they have to be tear- torn down? Like, and it was, it was a hypothetical question. It do- does not require an answer. But I think what you're suggesting is that if we're not going to go back to 2019, what 2020 and the future looks like, there's going to be a lot of very diverse questions yeah. and problems that have not been anticipated. But those are sometimes good things. I, I would say, Richard, don't divest your real estate portfolio just yet. <laughs> in, in, in the context of returning to work, returning to office work, I should say returning to work. Oh, my God, we've been working harder since we've been away. Um, but returning to office work, um, I, I think by necessity, you're going to see, I mean, people will have to work in, in, in an office. Um, but you're, you're, you're going to see probably 25% of the people work. And in a social distancing context, they probably need to be um, you know, at least six feet away instead of sitting in four by four cubes that are two feet apart. Um, so, you know, there's still going to be a need for floor space. Um, one of the unfortunate things from our perspective is that it always was the floor space question, you know, where am I going to sit this employee when they come to work? And we, from an IT perspective in provisioning in new employees, we, we always had that uh, the long pole in the tent was the, uh, was the accommodations. Well, it's not anymore. Now we have to figure out a way to deploy equipment to enable somebody to work for the government within days of uh, them even conceiving that they want to hire somebody and they're coming in the door. So, and, and there are a lot of interesting solutions to do exactly that. And, you know, I, I've talked a lot about the business of getting laptops and tablets out to people. Well, there, there are much better solutions to enabling people virtually, especially if they're already equipped at home and they have a desk that's taking up a lot of real estate with devices and stuff. Um, you want to do that securely, but uh, you know th- there is some opportunities there that we haven't leveraged yet uh, to, again, like I say, prepare us better for the next pandemic. And there will be another one. Oh, undoubtedly, or some other emergency that has to take, that has to be addressed. So uh, I, I want to thank you again, Jacques, Jack, <laughs> for joining us and, and telling the story on how you and, and the rest of the ESDC enterprise team and, and some of your colleagues within the ESDC was about to, was able to help so many Canadians. So thanks for joining us and telling that story. Well, Richard, thank you for keeping on, keeping on and uh, beating the drum of open government and open data. You're, you're, a, you're, you're a legend and a hero. Well, maybe in your eyes and in my mom's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I just try, much like you, I think, you know, we just try to do our part, right? So thank you. And in the spirit of being Canadian, we're going to keep thinking. And as usual, I'd like to thank our audience for listening. And please leave us a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better. Or if there's any guests or any stories 
that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.